You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, as we look at chapter 19 this morning, the title of this message is Someone Wants You Dead. Now, before we find out why I gave our message such a crazy title, why don't we pray and get ready for it? Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that, that, that your word is living and it is active and it is sharper than any double-edged sword, meaning that sometimes we need heart surgery. Sometimes there's things in our heart that don't need to be there, things in our lives that need to be cut away. But Lord, other times there's, there's things in us that, 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 that we struggle with and we need encouragement. We need strengthening. We need, we need edification. Lord, you know our hearts. You know what's in our heart. Lord, you, knew, you know what our heart needs to hear. So we pray that as your word goes out this morning, your, your word would, 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 would be exactly what we need to hear this morning, that it would strengthen us, it would equip us, or if necessary, cut away some things within us. But we pray that you would speak to us, you would have your way with your people through your word this morning. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Everyone say it. Amen. Now, years ago, uh, like, like, like 30 years ago, I, I, was, I was still an assistant pastor over, over at Crossroads Calvary Chapel in Wheat Ridge. Now, at that time, this was a, a very large church. I mean, five to 8,000 people. The, the sanctuary had like 2,000 seats. Now, I share that because, because at one point, we were asked to host a funeral for a fallen police officer. Uh, now, the, the pastor performing the service, he was, he was a visiting pastor, a guest pastor from, from I think, Phoenix, if I remember correctly. Now, uh, he came out, and, 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 and he performed the service, and I got to tell you, every seat was filled. There wasn't an empty seat. In fact, we didn't have enough seats. There were, there were bunches and bunches of people standing all over the place as people drove from miles and miles to honor the life of this officer who gave his life in the line of duty. Now, during the, during the service, the funeral director, I think he was with Olinger's or something like that, but he, he turns and he, he whispers and says, you know what? When my time comes, when, it, when, when I die, I want my funeral to be in a place like this, a place this big with this many seats. Now, I don't know what got into me, but, but I kind of turned, I smiled, and I said, so what you're saying is that there's a lot of people that want to see you dead. Uh, but... Well, this morning, we see that someone wants to see David dead. And it's not just someone, it's not just anyone, but it's, but it's the king of Israel himself who's hell-bent on seeing David's destruction. So now as we look at the first seven verses, we see that someone, that is the king, wants David dead. Verse 1, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David and said, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I'll tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, and, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his own life into his hands, and he struck down the Philistine, and, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and, and rejoiced. Why then will, will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without a cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore and said, As the Lord lives, he, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. 
Now remember, back in chapter 18 last week, we, we saw that, 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 that David had to walk wisely. Why? Well, because we saw that, that Saul was basically secretly planting landmines for David, right? He, he was secretly plotting David's demise, David's destruction. As he would send David out on, on, on these quote-unquote missions, we called them mission impossible, because he was hoping that, that David would not come back from these missions, that he would die in the line of duty. But now in this chapter, Saul's not even pretending anymore. I mean, he, he, he's, he's, not even, he's not even trying to, to, to put on a front. Now he, 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 he hates David, and he doesn't, he doesn't care who knows how much he hates David as he issues this public order to kill David. But now Jonathan intervenes on, on David's behalf, and, and he talks to Saul and basically talks him off the ledge. He, he talks him out of his rage, and, 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 and he kind of calms him down. So things are calmed down for the moment. Things seem to go back to normal, at least for now. But listen, let me ask you, how many of you came from, from a quote-unquote dysfunctional family, uh, a messed up family life? No, so I know some of you would say, well, you know what? You know, me and my family, we put the fun in dysfunctional. But you know, listen, the truth is that if you grew up in a dysfunctional home, an alcoholic home, an abusive home, then you know firsthand that, that there's nothing fun about dysfunctional. I mean, you know the pain. You, you, you know the, 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 the constant state of, of just trauma and, and dysfunction and terror. No, some of you, maybe you didn't grow up in a dysfunctional home. Maybe instead you, you've worked in a dysfunctional workplace. In fact, I remember before I went into the ministry, I worked at a, at a place called Napa Auto Parts Warehouse. It was a good company to work for, but the environment... I mean, it was a dysfunctional workplace. I mean, you know, there are people getting high left and right on the job. There are people stealing auto parts, selling them at the flea market, and the guys are picking fights at work left and right. In fact, uh, uh, there was a guy who threw an alternator at me one day. This was the kind of place where, where they would write cuss words on the walls in the bathrooms and misspell them. I'm like, it only has four letters. <laughs> no, that word does not start with PH. I'm just trying to tell you. Now, maybe you work in an environment like this, and if so, uh, you might benefit from the book that Alan Caviola wrote a, a while back titled Toxic Coworkers, subtitled How to Deal with Dysfunctional People on the Job. And in the book, he, he deals with the subcriminal psychopath, the, the narcissistic coworker, the, the paranoid administrator. But what we see in this chapter this morning is that Jonathan was raised in a dysfunctional home, and meanwhile, David is, is working in a dysfunctional, toxic workplace. I mean, his boss literally wants him dead. That's dysfunctional. And now look, if, if you've been in that environment, if you've lived in this environment, if, if you were raised in this environment, then you, you know what happens. I mean, you, you know the pattern, you know the cycle. You know that it's kind of the same thing over and over. You see that same old cycle again and again and again where there's a blow up, uh, there's, there's rage, it, it's, it's out of control, and then somebody you know, comes in and, and intervenes, usually the authorities, but somebody gets involved, and as a result, things calm down for a while. Things kind of simmer, things get better, at least for a short time, but it's short-lived. Because after a few weeks or, or after a few months, the crazy cycle happens again and again and again and again. And that's what we see in this chapter. For now, things calm down. There's a lull in the action, but it's short-lived. It's going to pick back up. And, and so what we see is that the issue with Saul is, is, that, is that, frankly, his heart never changed. Sure, his behavior was corrected for a time. 
Sure, outwardly he seemed better, but inwardly he was still the same old Saul. Nothing changed. And this just reminds us that that you can't have real change until there's a heart change. You can't have real change until the heart changes. And so we don't need behavior modification. What we need is transformation. But Saul never gets transformed. So yeah, there's a lull in the action. But as it's been said, that lull in the action, that's not peace. That's just the enemy reloading. And so it's going to pick back up. The cycle is going to start again. In fact, as we pick up the next verse, verses 8 through 10, we see that the battle resumes. Verse 8, and there was war again. And David went out and fought with, with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. And a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in hand. And David was playing his lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So now this section starts with this phrase, and there was war again. Now by the way, that statement is true in more than one way. Because on the one hand, Saul was at war with an external enemy, the Philistines. But on the other hand, he was also at war with an internal enemy, his own jealousies, his own fears, his own insecurities. And and so just as it seemed that there was a lull in this war with the Philistines, but now that, that war starts back up, the ceasefire is over. Well, in the same way, this truce that Saul makes uh, regarding David, when he he tells Jonathan, he says in verse 6, as the Lord lives, David shall not be put to death. Well, now that too is short-lived. And so David, on Saul's behalf, he he goes out into the battlefield, he he defeats the Philistines, and yet Saul, rather rather than being moved with gratitude because of David's loyalty, and and instead, Saul, because of David's victory, is, is stirred to jealousy. His jealousy is stirred back up to the point that verse 10 says that he sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. So it's like Saul snaps. He just can't take it anymore. He's like, you know, David, I mean, this, this guy is so talented. He's, he's talented at everything. He plays music. He fights battles. The people love him. I mean, I mean he's good at everything. He's, he's got like the Midas touch. Everything he touches turns to gold. He's like, you know what? I hate this guy. And so he snaps. And so as, as afraid as, as Saul was of the Philistines as an enemy, he was even more afraid of David. Why? Because he could see the hand of God on David's life. He could see that, that David was, was a threat, that David would be the one who would replace him one day. And so in his fear, in his insecurity, he snaps. He starts throwing spears. Now look, I don't know if you've ever been in David's shoes I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where, where you are literally in the presence of someone who's deranged, someone who's, who's, who's literally a, a lunatic, literally crazy. Not only are they deranged, not only are they a lunatic, but they're armed. They are weaponized. Listen, this is a scary situation. I remember when I was 11, maybe, maybe 12 years old, uh, my mom and I, we were living in, in, in West Denver, uh, roughly like, like Sheridan and whatever, but just West Denver area. And she had a live-in boyfriend at that time. His name was Jeff, Jeff Bishop. Now, Jeff, uh, you know, he, he, he was an alcoholic, uh, he, he was a, he, and he was also a drug dealer. And, and now, now he, he was also very, very, very violent, punching holes in the walls, throwing things around, yelling, cussing, throwing things. Now, he never beat me, but he constantly beat her. He beat my mom like a drum. 
to the point that, 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 that one day she had enough. And, and you know, you, you hear of, of teenage runaways? Well, she was, a, she was a mother who ran away. She was a runaway mother. She, 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 she realizes that he's going to murder her, that he's going to kill her. So she flees. She runs for her life. Now get this. She realizes that he's going to murder her. She runs away and leaves me there with him <laughs> for the next two to three weeks. She's gone for two to three weeks. Now listen, she was the breadwinner in the house. He mooched off for her. He took advantage of her, meaning there was no food in the house. So now at 11, 12 years old, I'm going to Safeway. I'm shoplifting hamburger and, and, and cereal and peanut butter and just, you know, having to stay alive. And, and so during this whole time that she's out doing who knows what, meanwhile, he's in the house. Night after night, he would stay up drinking and drugging, shooting himself up with this, snorting that and sniffing this. And, 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 and as he's doing this, he, he would be polishing his gun, his 38, his 38 special, he called it. He would polish it, not only polish it, but then all of a sudden he'd start shooting it off in the house. Not only shooting it off in the house, but shooting it at my bedroom wall. And so at the end of the week, I mean, there were literally dozens of bullet holes in my, in my wall, many of them just inches above where my head would have been. Now listen, I don't know for sure, but, but I happen to think that perhaps what David might have been feeling could have been something similar to what I was feeling at the age of 11 as bullets were flying in my direction. Perhaps that's how he felt as spears were being chucked at his direction. But now as we pick up verses 11 through 17, we see that David gets help from, a, from, from his lesser half, not his better half. As we study the book of 1 Samuel, we see that his wife, McCall, was definitely not his better half. Verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. Pause here. Now it says he sent messengers. Don't picture some little guy with a messenger bag. This was not the mailman. These were armed soldiers who came to kill him. And so Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you don't escape with your life tonight, tomorrow, you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. And Michal took an, an, an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul's messengers uh, came to take David, she said, he's sick. And then Saul sent messengers to, to, to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was, was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at the head. And, and Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? And Michal answered and said, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So David's wife, who, by the way, was also Saul's daughter, she comes to David and she's like, you know what, David, we, we've got problems. My dad wants to kill you. you know, he, he, he wants to kill you. you know? So, so if, if you're not out of here by the night, you're going to be dead in the morning. So she comes up with this plan. Now listen, this is a woman, by the way, who spent her whole life living under the roof of Saul. I mean, do you think she's seen these spears fly once or two herself? I mean, do you think that she's seen this kind of rage and this kind of anger fly out of control a time or two in her, in her own life? And so the, the, she, 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 you know, she, she may not have had the courage to, 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 to get away from Saul herself, but at the same time, she knows that David is in real danger. So she, she comes up with this, with this plan. She lets him out the window. And then she does that same old trick that we've seen in every movie before, where she gets some kind of a dummy, dresses it up, puts it in the bed, and makes it look like David's still asleep. We've seen it a million times. 
And so now the soldiers show up on the scene, and, and they're like, where's David? And she's like, well, uh, he, he's in bed. He's, he's, he's sick. Yeah, that's what it is. He's, he's sick. He's in bed. And they didn't want to kill him anyway. They, they like David. So they're like, okay, well, we'll come back later. So they go back to the king, and they're like, you know, your majesty, bad news. We, you know, David's not feeling good today. Today's not a good day to kill him. And so Saul's all like, oh, little Davy's sick? Oh, that's so sad. He's like, are you crazy? If he's sick and in bed, he's even easier to kill. Go get him, sick bed and all, and I'll do it myself. But it's interesting. We, we see kind of a, an interesting dynamic as we, as we look at Michal, David, David's wife. We see this interesting dynamic where on the one hand, you know, she sees that David's in danger and she's compelled to help him. But then on the other hand, uh, she, when, when, her, when her dad confronts her and says, why have you deceived me like this? We see that, that she doesn't have the courage to confront Saul's toxic personality to stand up to him. Instead, what does she do? She, a, a little CYA, a little cover your assets, right? And, and, and so, you know, he, he, she, she covers her assets and, she, and, and he's like, you know, why did you deceive, deceive me? And, he, and she's all, well, well, he threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. So basically, she's kind of throwing David under the bus a little bit. You know, it's interesting. You know, one of the one of the, the the more dysfunctional patterns that we tend to see, especially with victims of abuse, whether whether it's whether it's child abuse or even domestic violence, is sometimes we see this tendency where the victim, for whatever reason, will defend their abuser. In fact, I've had more than one police officer tell me that that one of the more dangerous calls they get are domestic violence calls. Why? Well, because they come on the scene hoping to, to rescue the victim of domestic violence only to find that the victim turns on them and attacks them while they're trying to arrest the abuser. And that's why oftentimes there has to be more than one officer, one to deal with the victim and one to deal with the abuser. And so in this case, she turns on David, kind of throws him under the bus. But now as we pick it up in verse 18, down to the end, we discover what to do with the Saul's in our own lives. Listen, we all have one. Every one of us have been hurt. Every one of us have been betrayed. Every one of us has someone in our life who's, who's unfairly come after us. So what do we do with them? What do we do with the Saul's in our life? Verse 18, now David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. Now, by the way, it's believed that Samuel was the one who started up what was called the, the School of the Prophets. And it's also believed that the School of the Prophets was in this village called Nioth in the region of Ramah. And so in verse 19, it was told to Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they, when they saw the, the, the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing at the head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. And when it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And when Saul sent messengers again a third time, they also prophesied. Now, by the way, this word prophesied, it's not saying necessarily that, that they were proclaiming the future, nor is it necessarily saying that they were proclaiming the word of God. But as Bible commentary Merrill Unger puts it, it, it means that they fell into a trance or in a static state and, and, and a condition which immobilized them and made them incapable of, of accomplishing their evil intentions. It's like they were stopped dead in their tracks. So now when you think about it, the, the scene is almost comical, right? 
I mean, Saul sends his, 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 his troops to go arrest, if not even kill David, but instead the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They're rendered immobile, they're, they're, and all of a sudden they pro- start prophesying, and this happens not once, not twice, but three different times. In fact, it reminds me of another event in 2 Kings chapter 1 where, where King ah- Ahaziah, uh, he, 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 he's the king of Samaria, and, and he, he issues an arrest warrant for, for the prophet Elijah. Elijah is wanted dead or alive. Why? Well, because Elijah had been prophesying that the king was going to die. So now the king dispatches a captain of 50 to go and arrest Elijah. And the captain shows up and he says, man of God, uh, the king sent us to, to bring you back with us. And Elijah answers and says, well, if I really am a man of God like you say, then may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And sure enough, fire comes down from heaven and everybody's burned up. So the king dispatches another captain of 50 men. And he comes on the scene and says, man of God, we've been sent to come and get you. And Elijah says again, well, if I really am a man of God like you say, then may fire come down from heaven and consume you. And fire comes down from heaven and they get burned up. So the king sends now a third captain of 50 men. Now he comes on the scene a little humbly, a little more humble. He shows up and he's like, um, excuse me, sir, uh, you know, uh, don't, 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 don't strike me with fire. Don't, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just a guy trying to do his job here. You know, but the king wants to see you. Now, in that moment, God tells Elijah to go with him. So now Elijah goes with him, and, and the king says, well, do you have anything to say to me? Has God told you anything about me? And Elijah answers and says, yeah, God told me that you're going to die. You are a dead man walking. <laughs> so in the same way, Saul sends one group of soldiers and another group of soldiers and another group of soldiers and all three are rendered immobile. They're stopped in their tracks. They fall into a trance. They are prophesying. And with that, now verse 22 says, then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Sekiu. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naioth at Ramah. And he went there to Naioth in Ramah and the spirit of God came upon him also. And, and he also prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he too was stripped off of his clothes. And he, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. And thus it is said, is Samuel also among the prophets? And so like the villain in almost every movie we've ever seen, Saul's like, you know what? I guess if you want someone dead, you got to do it yourself. So now he goes to the village and he shows up on the scene. And all of a sudden he too starts prophesying. But now we read that he was under so much of the influence of the Holy Spirit, he actually takes his clothes off. It says he was naked all day and all night. Now, by the way, that word naked in the Hebrew language may not mean what you're picturing in your mind. The Hebrew word there, arom, in this context is indicating that he stripped himself of his royal robes and he's now basically in his fruit of the looms. So he's not stark naked, rather he's in his royal underwear. Now, the word itself, arom, also implies a sense of shame. Why? Well, because it's, it's a word that, that oftentimes, uh, when, when it was used, it would, it would, it would talk of a prisoner. And, 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 and the prisoner would be stripped down to their underwear before they were whipped and tortured. Or in some cases, a slave would be stripped down to their underwear before they were forced to serve as slaves, and they would serve in their underwear. So the picture is, is, that, is that Saul is going from king of the hill all the way down to naked and ashamed. And, and so here's Saul. He, he starts out full of himself, full of pride. He's filled with rage. He's filled with anger. And he's abusing his position, abusing his power as the king of Israel. And he's targeting one man, trying to get rid of David. 
And as he's on his path, he's on his way, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes upon him and the Holy Spirit strips him of his royal robes. And in many ways, it's a reminder that, 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 that God had rejected Saul as the king. It's a reminder that one day David would be his replacement. It was a reminder that there was nothing that Saul could do to stop God from removing him from the throne. That just as the Holy Spirit removed him from his, removed his royal robes, God would also take his royal throne. And so in this chapter, we, we see that, that Jonathan tried to defend David, but to no avail. Michal, his, his wife, tried to help David, but, but she lacked the courage to actually stop Saul. In fact, in this chapter, we see that the only one who could stop Saul in his tracks was the Holy Spirit. The only one who could stop Saul in his tracks was the Holy Spirit. And so what do we learn from a story like this? We learn that when someone has it out for you, we learn that, that when, 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 you're, when you're wrongly accused, you're being wrongly attacked, we learn that God is your defender. God is your defender. Listen, there are going to be times in your life when you're going to be misunderstood. There's going to be times when you're going to be falsely accused and wrongly attacked where they will mistreat you and they will abuse you. And listen, there will be in those times, in those moments when you're under the, under the gun, under attack, there are going to be times when you want to defend yourself. And there are going to be times when, when you get angry when those who, who claim they love you, those who claim they believe in you, and yet they don't come to your defense. And you're, and you're going to feel angry. And in times like that, you need to remember these words, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, where it says, the Lord is your mighty defender, perfect and just in all his ways. Or these words in Psalm 62, verses 5 through 7, where it says, I will depend on God alone. I put my hope in him. He alone protects and saves me. He is my defender, and I shall never be defeated. My salvation and honor depend on God. He is my strong protector. He is my shelter. By the way, do you know who wrote those words in Psalm 62? David. David was a man who spent a decade and a half of his life being pursued by Saul wrongly accused and wrongly attacked. And yet David knew that God alone was his protector. God alone was his savior. God alone was his defender. In fact, as we study this book, the book of, of, of 1 Samuel, we're going we're gonna to see two things. Number one, we're going to see that David left Saul in God's hands. And number two, we're going to see that God dealt with Saul. David didn't have to lift a finger. David didn't have to do anything to defend himself. God defended him. God dealt with Saul. Reminding us of these words in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, where it says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. So what it comes down to, it's a matter of trust. Do you really trust God? Do you trust that God will take care of you and take care of them? That passage in Romans, it concludes by saying this. In Romans chapter 12, verse 21, it says, Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Let me illustrate that in a practical way. Years back, there was a man named Earl Dahlman. Now, Earl ran a home supply business in the inner city of Grand Rapids, Michigan. But he used his business to further the cause of Christ. 
Uh, he, 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 he led several of his customers to Christ. He led several teenagers to Christ. And he gave away hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Bibles. Now, one day he's, he's walking to the bank to make deposits when all of a sudden he's, he's, he's jumped by two young men who, who, who beat him, stab him repeatedly, take his money, and left him for dead. Now, ultimately, they get arrested. Uh, they, 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 they get put in prison, and they're awaiting their execution. But while they were awaiting execution, Earl's widow, her name was Maureen, would go and visit them every week. Every week until they were executed, she visited them, she, she brought them Bibles, she prayed for them, and she shared the gospel with them. Now, reporters at one point got a hold of this, and they confronted her, and they asked her, they said, you know, why do you keep visiting these men? I mean, why do you keep praying for them? I mean, don't you hate them? Don't you want vengeance? And her answer was powerful. She said, vengeance is God's business. My business is forgiveness. She says, my Bible tells me not to let anger conquer me, but to conquer, I'm sorry, not to let evil conquer me, but to conquer evil by doing good. And she says, I can't think of anything better than, than, than forgiving them and praying for them and sharing the gospel with them and leaving them in God's hands. Listen, if you've been taken advantage of, if you've been hurt, if you've been wrongly accused, falsely accused, wrongly attacked, I challenge you to follow David's example and leave them in God's hands. Trust him to defend you and to take care of them. In fact, the Bible reminds us that he's the defender of the weak. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 says, But those who trust in the Lord for help will find their strength renewed. They will rise on wings like eagles. They will run and not get weary. They will walk and not grow weak. Listen, he's the defender of the weak. He was the defender of David, and he will be your defender as well. Amen? So, Father, we thank you for your word. Your, your word is true. You are true. The challenge is, are we going to believe it? Are we going to stand on it? Are we going to actually do it and live it? Even when the going gets rough, even in the line of fire, even when, 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 when the spears are coming our direction, are we going to trust you and turn on you and turn to you and, and know that you alone are our true protector? You are our defender. You're the defender of the weak. So we trust you. In Jesus' name, why don't we stand and sing one more time to the Lord. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.